Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Decoder Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Hi, this is Ann and Al Simpson in Cody, Wyoming, asking you to turn off your cell phones and give us your full attention. And this is Big Al from Cody. Enjoy the show. Hey, this is Anna, and this episode of Death, Sex, and Money is a little different. We're bringing you the three conversations I had on stage at our live show at the Brooklyn Academy of Music in May. There were about 850 people in the room. I sat on stage in a white armchair. To my left was a turquoise couch, and to my right, a live band, Luscious Jackson. But the night started with Tracy K. Smith, who walked out on stage and read part of her poem, My God, It's Full of Stars. Perhaps the great error is believing we're alone, that the others have come and gone, a momentary blip, when all along space might be chock full of traffic, bursting at the seams with energy we neither feel nor see, flush against us, living, dying, deciding, setting solid feet down on planets everywhere, bowing to the great stars that command, pitching stones at whatever are their moons. They live wondering if they are the only ones, knowing only the wish to know, and the great black distance they, we, flicker in. I'm Anna Sale. I'm so glad we're here together. 
We make this show in a small studio at WNYC. You maybe listen to this show all by yourselves with your earbuds in. So it's so special to be in a room together. This is Radio Love Fest, a partnership of BAM and WNYC, a listener-supported public radio station. It's our first birthday this week, so we're celebrating. And to help us do that, our house band for tonight is Luscious Jackson. Luscious Jackson, Jill Kniff, and Gabby Glazer have been playing together since they were teenagers. Their very first gig was opening for the Beastie Boys and Cypress Hill. Badass. They were everywhere in the 1990s. They went their separate ways in 2000, but reunited in 2013 when two albums came out, one of new Luscious Jackson songs and one of children's songs, because they've since had some kids. So we are so glad that they are here tonight as we celebrate Death, Sex, and Money's first birthday. Also here, you already met her, Tracy K. Smith. She's a poet. She's a Pulitzer Prize winner. She's a Princeton University professor. And she writes poems about life and death, meaning and belief, David Bowie and Levon Helm. She is very cool. We will talk to her later on in the show. Also here, comedian W. Kamau Bell. You might have heard him recently on Death, Sex, and Money. I talked to him about what's been happening in his life since Totally Biased was canceled, his television show, moving back to California, trying to restart his career, the strains on his family. Got some good news. Since we talked, he's got a new show coming out next year on CNN called The United Shades of America. And he's here tonight with his wife, Melissa Hudson-Bell, to give us an update on how their life is going. But we are going to start with two of the world's most influential people in culture and design. And they also happen to be totally in love with each other. Please welcome Simon Doonan and Jonathan Adler. Welcome, Jonathan. Welcome, Thank you. Simon. Hi. Who is our guest? You need to know that Simon and Jonathan walked out on stage carrying a dog, a small reddish brown lap dog. <laughs> this is Foxy Lady Adler Doonan. <laughs> Why is Foxy Lady here? Uh, <laughs> We've just become those gays who travel with their dog everywhere, I'm afraid. Um, no, Foxy Lady is a new addition to the Adler Doonan household, and we didn't want to leave her at home alone eating everything in the apartment tonight. She's very welcome here. Well, I want to talk with you about your relationship. You've been together since 1994. You got married in 2008. Simon, you are the creative ambassador for Barney's. You've written lots of books, including your last one, The Asylum, True Tales of Madness from a Life in Fashion, and you're a columnist for Slate. Jonathan Adler, you are a potter, you're a designer, you're the namesake for 28 stores worldwide. You've both had really large careers during the course of your relationship. So I want to ask you about that first date in 1994. <laughs> uh, what, what individually were your relationships to money when you met? That's actually a great question because we were at such different um, points in our lives. As you can all see, I'm much, almost impossibly younger than Simon. (laughs) (laughs) And so 
I was 28 and he was 42. <laughs> and, um, we, like, I was a broke-ass potter. You know, I, I think that year I made $3,000. Um, and I was kind of bohemian-ish. And Simon was super successful, like, legendary retail exec. And money was actually, I think, one of the big challenges. Um, not for me. I never thought about it. Because... <laughs> Um, because basically, um, I, I have a large group of friends, and they're all pretty bohemian and wacky and kooky. I would just happen to be the the one who had a, a corporate job in retail and a Range so Rover. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, so, so. I just thought, you know, I just thought, well, you're a designer, or whatever. I, I don't know. I wasn't. I've never been. When I had no money, I was fine with it. When I had some money, it was like whatever. So I wasn't, it wasn't a fixation for me. So how does it work now in your relationship? Because I'm so great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now money is like something we like don't even think or talk about. How does that work? Really? It just kind of happens. Is it separate? We've both been lucky. Yeah, it's separate-ish. We've just both been really lucky. You pay for that and then I'll pay for that, right? Yeah. We kind of, we both have been lucky to have made enough money that it's not like our number one concern in life. Though for me... It was a huge concern when I was young because, as I said, I made 3000 bucks. I was broke. I'm a dude, and I'm kind of... I'm a cisgender dude and have kind of male um, feelings about making a living, and I felt kind of like a loser for being so broke-ass. Um, but I worked it out over the years, and Simon was always great. I think you kind of Well, I guess stuff. I was lucky to live in L.A. and London and then New York uh, before it became so mega... You know, and it was so expensive to live here and blah, blah, blah. So I never... Now, I, you see young people probably are more focused on that because they have to be to, to get a foothold and make a living. And, right. But I'm lucky to be from that time when it really wasn't such an issue. So, so let's, go back, let's go back to that first date in 1994. I've read, uh, Jonathan, you showed up on Rollerblades. I did. Yeah. <laughs> At least it wasn't a segue. <laughs> And, Simon, you've been living in New York for quite a long time, and by 1994. About 10 years, approximately. So, this is, to, to live in New York through the 80s and into the early 90s, as a gay man, you experienced the AIDS crisis. Yeah. Horrible. I'm yeah. Th- um, well, I was um, living in L.A., and I started to hear about it, and then my roommate got sick, and then this one and that one, and everyone I'd ever slept with or knew was dropping dead. So it was like something so horrible. And everyone, me, my, not colleagues, what's the word? Cohorts. Cohorts. Um, They were all um, very young, so we didn't really have the the emotional equipment to deal with it. So it was very, very traumatizing. And I think I was just emerging from it when I met Johnny. Did that make intimacy feel scary? Yes. It made you feel like you had to put on hazmat suits to even huh. like... Because sex was so, became so inextricably connected with death and disease. And yeah, young people today, they don't have any idea. But it was, that's the way it was. And did you get it, Jonathan? Like that he was experiencing that? Or? I did. I mean, I'm impossibly younger than Simon, yeah. as, you <laughs> as you mentioned. Um, but... Like what it's he, sort of like Ruth Gordon and Bud Court. In, yeah. yeah, and we're very Harold and Maude. <laughs> Harold um, and Maude. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so I, I'm 
very lucky in that my cohort wasn't, you know, my cohort was affected, obviously, and I know a lot of people who have had it and died. But Simon is, like, what he went through and what his entire cohort went through is just so horrifying, it's hard to even really understand. Um, And certainly young people today don't understand it. I got it um, at, at that age, but I wasn't affected by it in the same way Simon was. And I think it's, um, at this point, if someone's name comes up, you know, if he says, oh, that's Paul, I say, are they still around? And the answer is inevitably no. Hmm. Like, uh, nobody is still around. Hmm. It's shocking. So I think, you know, I think that um, Simon's certainly written about it a lot. Um, but I, I, you know, you're sort of like a war vet almost. Yeah, Vanity Fair did a thing in the late 80s with this big spread with all these small pictures of all the people who were prominent. These were just people who were prominent who died, and it was, like, horrifying. And then there were all the people that weren't. 600,000 people, I think, something like that. Um, Yeah, but but when we met, it was um, a very different time during the plague. It was not... It was before... um, combination therapy had emerged and where before there was as much hope as there is today so i think it certainly like colored any gay dude's um approach to relationships yeah how's that made aging feel simon for you that's a great question like i i never worry about aging 50 great bring it on 55 60 i was so happy to get to see 60 and like um i don't have that that thing about aging. I love being old. I'm happy. I'm so grateful. And think, I think every day, think of all the people that didn't, would have given anything to reach 35, 40. And 30. So yes, it has. Um, you know, that whole, you open a magazine, it's all age-defying creams and blah, blah, blah. I just think people are on, it's crazy, that whole fear of aging. So lucky to tuck a, put a life under your belt and and Simon's lucky to have great hair, which is staying fantastic. <laughs> so that's why I think aging is much easier for him that than for helps. others. <laughs> it's actually a toupee. Is it? It's a very nice toupee. <laughs> have you felt your age difference differently as you've gone through different stages of life together? I, I never even think about it. Yeah. Not really. I think we, like, I came in just before this started before everyone became device obsessed and I think that we actually have far more in common um, than I feel with the people I know who are 14 years younger than I am now don't you feel like I feel like we still have the same frame of reference yeah we actually do like our college experience wasn't that dissimilar but now it would be just very different because of communication and blah 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 so yeah no it wasn't that weird Um, and of course, when I met Johnny, I was in much better shape than he was. <laughs> Even though now, he was rollerblading. So there's a bit of a bait switch going on that's, there. Where that's I'm, actually the central tenet of our, uh, the central theme of our relationship, I think, has been a bait and switch. Like, he thought he was getting this bohemian, broke ass potter, and I thought I was getting like a little buttoned up retail executive. Um, and then during the course of our relationship, Simon has, made, you know, I've understood that he's actually incredibly. <laughs> bohemian spirit and he has in addition to being a retail exec and fashion dude he's become an incredible writer which is and your days are much more sort of easy breezy bohemian and i have um, gone from being a broke-ass potter to a less broke-ass potter with a bunch of stores and 300 operatives working for me and 
So it's been a pottery huge mogul. bait and switch. Yep, you know, just another pottery mogul. You know, that old story. Okay, so I am getting married in August. Mazel. Woo! Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I'm curious, having been together since 1994, that's 21 years this year, are there things in your relationship that you've learned how to do that you wish you knew how to do better earlier on? <laughs> Hang on. I'm it's hard stupid, if you don't have any so tension. Yeah. Yeah, this is, <laughs> I know, I feel like such letdowns. We have no tension. I think the, we just don't even really talk about anything, so... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> this is the first time we've ever even taken a moment to reflect on our 21 yeah. years together. <laughs> We don't take umbrage. You know, I think that's a big light motif in a lot of people's relationships where, like, somebody's taken umbrage and the other person has to find out what it is. It's like, we've never had that dynamic. I think it's because we're both sort of busy and career-focused, work-focused, creatively fulfilled. It's a big, you know, that's a big thing. So if you're creatively satisfied, you come home and you're not looking to pick a fight. You know, you're going to... Just watch some banal television and have a laugh. What do you watch? Um, kind of. We watch whatever I want. It's I so got. Banal, I, I, I can't control even the remote. Uh-huh. Yeah, he controls the remote. I'm very. I think the reason our relationship works is because he's so technologically tragic that I <laughs> am in complete control of the remote and the radio, and yeah, it just he's works. Away on some trip to Peru or wherever, I just sort of sit in darkness. <laughs> Like it's, very, it's very poignant. It, he, he truly doesn't know how to work the TV. He just sits there. I think it's Happy. like... Happy. Yeah. It's, an, it's like a Samuel Beckett play. I'm just there in the dark with Foxy. It's actually not a joke. He literally can't work the light. You know how everything's complicated now? Like light switches aren't just like on off. Yeah. So everything's broken in our house and he just sits there sort of as his life gets smaller and smaller. <laughs> Maybe reading a book by candlelight because his Kindle doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Foxy. Well, thank goodness for Foxy, Jonathan Adler and Simon Doonan. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you. It's really nice to talk to you. So, Death, Sex, and Money is a show where we hear conversations and stories of extraordinary people who've become well-known, and we also hear each other's stories. We listen to each other. And if you bought a ticket to this show tonight, you might have gotten an email from us, because it's our first birthday at Death, Sex, and Money. We asked you to tell us what had happened in your lives in the last year. And we heard from a lot of you. You sent voice memos to deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. You did, or maybe the person sitting next to you did. But this is what you told us about what's happened in the last year. Hi, Anna. Um, What's different than it was a year ago? Well, I wasn't married a year ago. A year ago today, I was finalizing my wedding feature for the New York Times style section. Um, A year ago, I was discovering love. We broke up for the third time in six years last March. A year ago, we were just starting excitedly to try to get pregnant. I decided to move from Toronto to New York. For someone that I was madly in love with. 
professionally, career-wise, a year ago. Um, I think I'm actually in a completely different space because I would have never used the words like professionally or career-wise. Um, I quit my job. I left my home. I moved to another continent. Seems totally crazy in retrospect. I remember right before I left, you know, welling up, uh, thinking about what I decided to do and that it was a decision that spun out of control. I was that cliche that I never wanted to become. The girl who moves to New York and feels more alone amongst millions of people than she ever had before. The next 12 months were all about depression, addiction, poor communication, manipulation, guilt. And yet, somehow over time, I was able to put myself back together. I've finally forgiven myself for getting involved with a sexy, intelligent, and charming narcissist. I got a part-time job, made a few great friends, and found an excellent therapist. As I record this, we are in the midst of going through in vitro fertility treatment. My girlfriend joined me and just started looking for work and miraculously, after two months, was able to get a job. Hopefully by the time I come to Radio Love Fest, I will be pregnant. I had my first orgasms at 27. This is not to say that these things were easy or immediate. Now, a year later, I am questioning love. A year on, I find myself unemployed, uninvited to our apartment, um, unwelcome to communicate with my spouse unless it's through a lawyer. I think more than anything, this year's been one of being okay with not knowing the point. I have a completely different life than we had a year ago. It's been an interesting year. That's just a little bit of what's happened to the people in this room together tonight. One of you fell in love and ends the year trying to figure out how many compromises you're willing to make for that love. One of you is trying to get pregnant, and we are rooting for you. One of you got married and are dealing with feeling like it's not working, the end of an early marriage. And one of you had your first orgasms at 27! It's really exciting. Uh, But the point of the show is, you know, these are things that have happened in the last 12 years, but things are going to keep on happening, because that's how life unfolds. Someone who really understands that is Tracy K. Smith. She writes these beautiful poems Her Pulitzer Prize-winning collection, Life on Mars, includes this beautiful reflection on the death of her father. And her latest piece, her memoir, Ordinary Light, is from the vantage point of young Tracy, growing up in California and her family, and it takes us up through her mother's death in her early 20s from cancer. So please welcome back to the stage, Tracy K. Smith. Thanks for being here, Tracy. Thank so you. So you opened 
tonight with an excerpt from your poem, My God, It's Full of Stars, which is thinking about where we fit in the universe and what's around us. Right. What was the universe like where you were growing up? <laughs> what was your family like? Oh, I feel like my family was the... My family was so big by today's standards that it felt like I was a planet among many. Um, there were five kids. Um, I'm quite a bit young. Well, it's, I'm about eight years younger than my next sibling, and they're all rather um, close in age. Um, and my parents... Are were um, Southerners. My father was in the military, and by way of many different states, we ended up in California. Um, my mom, I think, in a lot of ways, was really the anchor of the family, someone who was really joyful and patient and loving and also very faithful. And that sense of faith and belief um, was something that we all received from her and kind of lived without questioning for a long time, you know, most of my childhood. That was a given, and um, the nuances that eventually uh, came up for me and the questions I had about what I wanted or needed to believe, um, those were so far away when I was a child, you know. They were just those things flickering out in the distance, to go back to that metaphor. Yeah, I mean, the way you write about your growing up, it was clear you were your mom's buddy. You're eight years younger than your next oldest sibling. And you recount a moment when your teenage brother comes home with his girlfriend and is cuddling with his girlfriend on the couch, which you know would offend your mom, and you're the one that gets furious with him on her behalf. Yeah. And your mom has to tell you to start talking to your brother again. (laughs) It's, uh, you know, telling these stories about yourself, it's a great opportunity to, to kind of just be firm with yourself and say, what was I thinking? And then there's this other aspect of it, which is like, oh, I was a child and I was absorbing so many uh, subtle subterranean feelings coming from all kinds of directions. I think that the reason that I felt uncomfortable with that probably had more to do with my mother's discomfort. But, you know, I didn't have a way of talking about that. And I didn't have an idea of what it would mean or even that I had permission to disagree with her. And so... I think the confusion came out as anger at my brother. Um, I never talked to him about that until I wrote this book. Huh. And um, in, in a way, uh, that chapter is kind of an apology to him for that. Hmm. And then you started to feel the itch to rebel against your mom. <laughs> well, doesn't everybody? It's a healthy, it's a healthy itch. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about your senior year of high school. Okay. What was happening in your senior year of high school? How did you... How did you first find yourself rebelling? Well, it wasn't a choice. It wasn't something that I set out to do. But uh, there came a time when my grandmother, who was in the probably intermediate stages of Alzheimer's, was staying with us. And my mother had this idea that maybe we could help her recover. And I think some of the tension of that situation led me to spend more and more time doing other things. At school, I became very close with one of my teachers. And um, some of the affinities that we had, just maybe because we were similar in terms of our interests, um, developed into something else. I, I came home from school the day before spring break of my senior year with this letter that he told me to, not to read until I got home. And it was basically a letter professing these feelings of love um, in a way that's kind of similar to the way I chose or, or had no choice but to react to my brother's, you know, revelation of being a person in love, a sexual being. Um, I, I didn't know what to do. I said, I, 
I, I like the way seeing this in language makes me feel. Um, and suddenly so many different possibilities in terms of what love meant, what it would feel like, what it would feel like to say that all seemed available. And so my reaction was to write a letter back that said, I feel like I love you too. And that started a, thank God, a chaste epistolary romance. Yeah. You know, as a parent now, I have young children, but I, um, yeah, that, that was, that could have gone in a lot of different different directions. <laughs> yeah. You wrote love letters to each other for a long period of time, for, and, and he was your teacher and he was married. My teacher was married. He had young kids. He, he was, you know, an adult. He was younger than I now am, but he was twice my age. Um, from my point of view, in a way, it made perfect sense. I thought I was wonderful. I thought I was so mature. I'd grown up with people that were his age, and I could talk to them, um, but I was a child, and so in, in going back to that, you know, and writing about it, it was interesting to give voice to some of those feelings that I had. And, and part of it was a kind of ecstatic feeling that like, oh, I was finally on the train of life. I could mm-hmm. finally, you know, you know, I'd read, spent so many time, so much time reading novels and, you know, reading about women that would swoon and, you know, this forbidden feelings of love. Um, I, could, I could imagine what that felt like. I could understand what that felt like. Um, but when I look back on it from my adult perspective, it's really, it's, in a way it's troubling for obvious reasons. And in a way I feel so lucky that it was limited to language, you know? And, and maybe one of the things that I took away from that, aside from guilt, which it took me a long time to kind of move beyond, um, was that those letters were probably the first instance of me really delving in language into what it was that I was thinking and feeling and imagining that words could transmit real feeling to somebody else. So maybe, in a way, um, I owe my life as a writer to some of those feelings that got articulated then. Hmm. That's, that's generous. That's, that's a generous reading of that <laughs> yeah, <situation. really> is. <laughs> Do you still have the letters? I do not, no. Um, I got rid of them when I was... They, they became a burden, you know, because yeah. it was this secret. It was this thing that I knew was, was wrong. It was something I never told my parents about. And um, so I, I was carrying this box of letters around. I took them home. I mean, took them from home when I moved away for college because I couldn't just have them lying around. And um, eventually I, I just felt... I think once I got into the... Um, conundrum of actual love at age 18, 19, um, those letters just seemed, um, seemed like a weight that I didn't need. So I actually made this big scene of burning them in our fireplace back in the days when college students had fireplaces huh. in their rooms. So. so you went to college, and just as you're leaving home to go to Harvard, your mom is diagnosed with cancer. Right. How much did she keep that secret from you from her kids? Well, um, I, you know, it's really hard for me to know if I knew she was going in for these tests. I hope I didn't, but it wouldn't surprise me if I was so wrapped up in these other things that I, and I'm not really expecting terrible results that I just, mom's going to the doctor. Um, but she, I remember the afternoon that she shared with one of my sisters and my father and me this diagnosis. Um, and they 
knew instantly what she meant when she said the tests came back positive. And I probably knew, but I allowed myself to get tripped up in the terminology. You know, mm-hmm. what does that mean? Um, that's probably like a very first stage of denial, mm-hmm. right? Like the pre-first stage of denial. So, so what were those... F- when you think about your relationship with your mom during those four years of college when you were away and you knew she was sick, getting treatment, some treatment, and you're also coming of age and individuating and mm-hmm. trying to live a life on your own. How much did you and your mom talk about what was happening in your life and what was happening in her life while you were in college? We scratched at the surface of both things. Um, I would talk to her, you know, this was before cell phones. I would have, you know, she'd call my dorm and we would talk and she would reassure me that everything was great, that she was feeling good, that everything had been eradicated. That was the word that she used. Um, and I believed that because I really needed to believe that. Although I also knew that there was this other shadow possibility, which was that, you know, I, I knew what cancer does to people. And so that would kind of surface in my mind periodically. And from my end, I told her what I was learning Mm -hmm. and you know, the clubs I was in, and my brother lived in, in um, the area, so what we did together, but I wasn't sharing with her those aspects of individuation that pulled me um, farther from the child that she had been shaping me to be, you know, this, you know, faithful, religious, not, not overly religious, but somebody who had a sense of what we do in our family and what we don't do, and I was doing all the things we weren't doing, like every other kid, um, and I thought that if I didn't tell her about it, then she wouldn't worry about me. Now, I now know. Isn't it crazy? Like, you, you, you reach a certain age, and you kind of can turn back and look backwards and say, that's silly. Um, parents, you, you know what's going on. You have a sense and a wish. And I, I imagine she must have been waiting for me to tell her about my life and about what I was doing. And, and I know, because of things that um, came up, that she was worried about some of those things. But um, one of my huge regrets and one of the the things that probably made me want to explore this relationship in a book was that I didn't get to have that adult relationship with her, which was about honesty and transparency. I never got to bring a boyfriend home and cuddle on the couch knowing my mother would be tied up and not seeing that. Um, Or I I chose not to. What was your mother's name? Catherine. Catherine. So you graduate from Harvard and you go back home that fall afterwards, and your mom's getting sick, sicker and sicker. Yeah. The cancer came out of remission early in my senior year, and um, that's when that denial really revved up. You know, I kept thinking, we just have to get through this and uh, so mom can, you know, we can go back to normal. And she's doing chemo, and she sounds tired, but I know she's getting better. And my brother let me, you know, my brother, the doctor, let me say that for a while and then finally he said we were flying home together at Christmas and he said you know this is this could be the last Christmas that we have with mom um, and hearing him say that suddenly I was able to hear it and take it in for what it meant um, and the question of what it would feel like to become someone without a mother I knew one or two girls from high school who, who didn't have mothers anymore came up um, in a terrifying way. Yeah. Um, 
I was also dealing with, you know, trying to make sense of the simple things that confound us when we're 21. Um, and I think sometimes I would turn to those things, like problems with my boyfriend or just confusion about what I would do after, after college as a way of turning away from this bigger reality. Uh, I started writing poetry really seriously in college, and though I would not, never have explained it to myself like this, I think it was really helpful to me to imagine that looking at something, thinking about it in words, describing it, and allowing it to reveal something to me was a kind of power that gave me a sense of security at a time when I had no power, really, because this huge thing was waiting to happen. And then you were all together when she passed. Yeah, we were all together, which I'm so grateful for. Um, I th- maybe I knew that I, I shouldn't have made any plans, or maybe I just didn't make plans. I knew I wanted to be a poet. That's the kind of plan that everybody yeah. is scared to hear their kids announce. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, I went back home after graduation and after a certain point it became clear that we all needed to be there so we were all with her um, in those last weeks of her life and that, that was really a gift um, although there were a lot of things that didn't get said by that point there you know, it, we, I imagine that if, there's, if there is conflict in a relationship it might come out there might be an active resolution that people are seeking to make when someone is dying. But if the conflict is, is um, really subterranean and, and not abnormal and not active, these things don't really come out. So we didn't, we didn't talk about you know, the secrets that I probably really wanted to be able to share. We just talked about what we should do, what movies we should watch, what I could cook for her... Um, or, or stories about when I was little that she, you know, felt like reminding me of or reminding herself of. How did your relationship with your father change after your mom passed away? I feel like, um, you know, my father was this wonderful, loving figure and an authority figure in the family. Like, he was the one who had, um, you know, if... This is a bad analogy. I shouldn't even say good cop, bad cop. But in a way, like my mother was the one that was like, oh, it's okay. And my father was the one that said, you should do better. Um, And I really felt like a child in his presence. But after my mother died and the fact that our relationship, you know, kept going and there there became less and less of a motivation for me to hide the things that were happening in my life as I got older and older, I feel like we we had an adult relationship. We, We fought a little bit. Um, in the year after my mom died because his life changed really rapidly. He ended up, you know, meeting a widow and having a relationship that lasted till the end of his life. Um, But the beginning of that was hard. I would have these dreams where my mother came back and just kind of silently would watch and, you know, without words, I knew she was saying, decide. Is it, you know, the, the new life or the old life? And those things really tore me up. Um, and talking about that, arguing about that with my dad, I think helped foster a real honesty mm. that, um, that we, I think, really benefited from. And I feel like, like um, he knew me and I, as, a, as a, the person that I am, you know, by the time that, that um, he ended up passing away many, many years later. 2008. Yeah. yeah. So 
you were writing this memoir about your experience of growing up and being parented while you were raising three little kids. You've got two-year-old twins mm-hmm. and a five-year-old girl. Did it affect the way you parented your kids? I think in realizing that I probably could have trusted my mother more than I did, um, maybe that is sort of a way of affirming the sense of trust that we all um, need bolstered about ourselves and our choices as parents, mm. you know? Um, there are these weird moments in my life where um, two things happen. Sometimes my daughter, you know, this happens all the time, but she'll, she'll be, become my mother, you know, in, in ways that feel very frightening. There was this one, one poem I wrote many years ago about um, this game my mom used to like to play with her sisters where uh, when they were kids, she would get this quilt and want to sit down in the room and have them pull the shades and, and she wanted them to feed her raisins as her medicine. Uh-huh. It was just a game that she played. And one day my daughter did that. She, she sat down on the couch and she said, Mommy, could you get my blanket for me? I'm really sick. And so I got it for her and she said, Now, can I have some raisins? Wow. And I just, you know, I, I, you know, I think that book about space and the universe was really a way of indulging in all of these wonderful ideas about possibilities that I do kind of house as a person. Um, and so that was delightful. But then there are moments when my daughter is doing something that she shouldn't do. And this has happened more than once. My reaction is not to say, Naomi, stop. My first reaction is to say, Tracy, could you stop? Which <laughs> is really weird. <laughs> I, I will probably have to write about that. At some yes, point. I want to read that. <laughs> Tracy K. Smith, thank you for sharing your you. story of your mother with us. Thank you. The memoir is Ordinary Light. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. That's poet Tracy K. Smith. Coming up after the break, I talk with comedian W. Kamau Bell and his wife, Melissa Hudson Bell, about how they're juggling the demands of Kamau's comedy career and raising their young children. Another highlight for me during the live show in Brooklyn was getting to recognize some special guests we had in the audience. Marissa Carroll and Liam Lowry, Josen Cummings, and Renine Bartley, the wife of Sing Sing prisoner Lawrence Bartley. They were all in the audience. You heard their stories in previous episodes. So it was really special to get to ask them to stand so we could applaud them and thank them for sharing their stories with us. Are there any death, sex, and money guests that you want an update on? We're doing updates this summer, so send us an email at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org about who you're wondering about. On the next episode, Ken Urell. He was a New York City police officer throughout the 1980s. And while he and his partner Mike Dowd were supposed to be fighting crime in Brooklyn, they were stealing money on the job and working for a local drug dealer. Ken Urell is in the new documentary, The 7-5, and he tells me about how he went from being a 20-year-old police academy graduate to driving home at the end of his shift with bags of cash. It was pure greed. You know, it's like almost like sharks in a, in a feeding frenzy. You walk into a room with 10 kilos of cocaine and, you know, 300000 in cash. You either turn it all in and the, the department gets to use it, the, it goes to the city coffers, or, you know, you're taking it for yourself.
This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Shankar Vedantam, here to tell you about a great mystery. That mystery is you. As the host of a podcast called Hidden Brain, I explore big questions about what it means to be human. Questions like, where do our emotions come from? Why do so many of us feel overwhelmed by modern life? How can we better understand the people around us? Discover your hidden brain. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature, hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash Death, Sex, Money. We are so excited to see you there. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Thanks for being here. The final guests for the night were W. Kamau Bell and Melissa Hudson Bell, who came in all the way from Berkeley, California. He's black, she's white, which comes up in our conversation. Welcome. Thanks. I'm really glad you're here. Oh, uh, thanks. This is so much easier to do with her here. I can just be quiet for <laughs> half the time. I don't know about Normally that. it's all about me, but you guys, take it away. Um, so, Kamau, when we talked on the show, you were in a point in your life when Totally Biased had been canceled, you all had moved back as a family to the Bay Area, you were trying to figure out what was going to happen next in your career, and also feeling pressure to earn for your family. Oh, yeah, that's all changed now. It's all fixed. Yes, it's all fixed. That's what I want to know about. Woo! Um, But you also talked about how, for you as a comedian, the way you earn for your family is by being on the road. Mm -hmm. What do you think has been the hardest part for Melissa in that? (laughs) I have to answer this question for her. She's here. (laughs) Normally I have to answer for her. You're right here. Uh, Tell me. Yeah. Uh, Being like, being a single parent when that wasn't the agreement you signed up for. Mm -hmm. 
We call it solo parenting. Solo parenting, yeah, yes, we do. Single parenting. Yeah, yeah. I guess. I mean, I I grew up with a mom who was a single parent, so I understand that that's totally possible, and and kids can turn out awesome. So I'm not yeah. saying that. Uh, <laughs> let the podcast listeners know I circled myself. Yes. Uh, so I don't think that, but it's certainly when it wasn't like you know, my mom knew she sort of like from the beginning was like, this is going to be on me. Her. Yeah. Yeah. And but Melissa didn't sign up for that, and so it's a lot. And the schedule is so hectic that it's like. I'm back for 48 hours. So let me just know what you need me to do for 48 hours, and I'm gone again. But I'll take care of it for almost two days. So, yeah. <laughs> so Alyssa, how does that work when you've got two little kids who like routines? Yes. What happens when Kamau shows up for those 48 hours? It's a little bit crazy. And I think what I had to adjust to was the idea that Kamau was around, but sometimes even during that 48 hours, not around. Like, the work for him doesn't stop. There's no weekend. There really isn't. And it took me a while to figure that out. Like, oh, great, it's Saturday. It's your day off. Everything is going to be family time, and we're going to, you know, relax and go to the farmer's market and take the kids to the playground, which we may or may not do. We do, but I'm like this. But also, he's got work to do and deadlines and stuff. And so, I mean... To a certain extent, I eventually like, had to convince myself, like, he's here, but he's not here. Like, I just need to continue to plan my weekends or plan my days the way that I would. And then I get to be really excited when he's available instead of, like, why aren't you available? You know, hold this baby. You're supposed to be here. This is my break, you know. And I think it changed how it felt, you know. Yeah, because you, you stopped expecting. Yeah. This is making me come off really no, quiet. No, no. No, I think it's... No, that laugh tells me, they're like, Jesus. (laughs) After all those things we heard about it. No, I mean, I have... have, have, It's it's hard because there's no... This is true of artists in general. It's not a a 40-hour-a-week job, and there's no, like, oh, everybody's clocked out because it's 5 o'clock. And so... And especially with the fact that now... With the fact that the, I've always said the weird thing about comedy is that you work, you get, you start doing it because you don't want a day job. Then if you work really hard and get lucky, you get a day job. Yeah. But it doesn't stop the night job from happening. (laughs) But what it does do, I think, is it makes the time when Kamau is available, like, just really sweet, you know? Our daughter is almost four, our daughter Sammy, and then Juno's now six months. And they are so excited to spend that time, and it gets to be really, like, deliberate, meaningful time, which is a cool thing, you know, sort of a cool byproduct of a very difficult work life, I think. Yeah. What do you do with, what do you do with Sammy, four-year-old? When you uh, we are big fans of television. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, and I'm not. I didn't. She, she's my daughter, so it's in her DNA. Yeah. Uh, so we, uh, we we like to we like to. I, I mean, the funny thing is, I, I enjoy the program she enjoys as much as she does. So we can sit back and just watch Doc McStuffins and uh, Sheriff Callie and some Little Einsteins, and I can sit there like Melissa's often like. There'll be an episode of like Lil Einstein's on, and she's like, I've never even seen that one. Like, what are you talking about? That's where they talk to the baby violin. It's like, I, I've got it on lock. I know what your favorite episodes are. So I, and then there's also like a thing that I'm really, that I started to do, I did last time when I was in town, where I'm really making time because she's almost four and she gets that I'm gone. She really does. Like, if I say I'm going to work and I mean I'm going to a meeting for an hour, she thinks I mean I'm getting on a plane. Yeah. And so I really started to be like, no, 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 I'll be back. But also, like, like the last weekend, I was like, Sammy, we were going to have a daddy-daughter day. And we spent the, and Melissa was gone with uh, Juno. And we spent the entire day hanging out like friends. 
You know what I mean? And, I, and it seems weird, except it's t- she's, and I say this a lot, I'm probably biased about this, but she's one of the coolest people I've ever met. Yeah. So I would want to hang out with her if she wasn't my daughter, but obviously that'd be weird. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> Man, that four-year-old is cool. What are you doing later? But I don't feel any weird, like, oh, i got to hang out with my kid. Like, I think it's, it's, there's this sort of dad narrative sometimes of, like, it's daddy day, or I gotta, or I gotta babysit. Oh, gross! When you say that about your child, uh, and I've sort of, and I really have no problem telling people. Like I work with these, uh, the show, the production team is in LA, and I often am like, yeah, no, I'm leaving tonight to go home because I want to hang out with my family tomorrow, and I sort of just own it and look them all in the eye, like that's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not, like I'm not. Oh, you gotta, you gotta be with the kids? No, I want to be with the kids, especially when I know the time is so limited. So, you know. What was the vision when you were first falling in love mm-hmm. in 2003, working, you're both theater people, you were kind of doing shows. What was the vision for success when you all were first talking about what you imagined with a life together? Paying all our bills on time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Making enough money for rent and food. Yeah. Like that. Actually, and also we were, we were doing weird, that. We were doing great. Yeah, and we went through periods where Melissa had a job, so she paid all. We were still dating; we weren't married at the point where she would pay all the bills, and I would, I would get a big check from something and stand up. So I would. We just sort of went back and forth, and this is why we were still dating. We had separate uh, residences, but I would stay at her house a lot, and we both I, had roommates. We both had roommates. Yeah, I had a roommate some in who, the living room. And the, yeah. I had a roommate in the living room. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> two bedroom apartment, dude in the living room. Uh, so we really were just piecing it together and not knowing where it was going to end up. Also, we met at a point where, much like earlier, I'm impossibly older than her. So <laughs> I was at a point where I was well into my career, but at that point, well in in a way that was like, I think this is just extended failure. Uh, <laughs> So my perspective was where she was like, when I met her, you, you, were, you were in seminary school to get a degree in art and history, and then she dropped out of that. So she was really trying to figure out where I'm going to land. She's always been a dancer. Uh, but I was really at the point of like, I think I've made some poor choices here. <laughs> but I'm in too deep to turn around, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> I've got to figure out a different path because I can't go back. Meanwhile, I was, I was, I was just a little bit out of college and figuring out like if I could take on an artist's lifestyle it was a huge question for me like whether or not that was possible or a smart thing to do and enter Kamal like <laughs> who was like oh people do this I'm well, 30 years well old. into their yeah. 30s I'm 30 years old and I got a roommate in the living room let's go <laughs> yeah. uh, here I was obviously starstruck <laughs> My, yeah <laughs> Like, oh, uh, artists, like, we can do this. This is exciting. That's cool. So seeing yeah. Kamau, like, <laughs> seeing, seeing Kamau trying to make it modeled for you that it was possible. Totally. Instead of, like, oh, my God, I don't want that. Totally. <laughs> Call me crazy. Melissa, you defended a dissertation right around the time you were having a second kid. And moving back across the country, how did how did you do that? How did that work? <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually, how did that yeah. work? <laughs> it, you, when uh, 
you were playing the clips earlier about a year ago. We both were backstage, like, what was a year ago? And I think it was right about this time a year ago that I had submitted my dissertation, which was like a project that I definitely went through phases where I thought, man, there is no way that this is ever going to get finished in the midst of all of this other stuff. Um, And it felt so good to get it done. I mean... I think at a certain point, certainly after we had moved to New York uh, and we had the means suddenly to hire childcare, and I could sit... That was a good six months. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I made the most of it when I could. Like, I I bought a desk and I positioned it in a certain corner in the apartment that we were in where I could, like, see a little slice of the river, like my own version of, like, there's nature out there somewhere, and just, like, sat down and had to do the work and do the writing and shut the door, you know, so the kid was on the other side of it, and... To a certain extent, some days like Kamau and the Kamau's career were on the other side of it, so that I could just plug away and like carve out that little space for myself to think about those other things, you know. So it was totally biased that gave you that space. Yeah, I and, so. and a really nice bed and couch. Yeah, that's what we got out of that show. <laughs> we got we were able to go to Crate and Barrel and be like, I want that one and, and that, that one, one and that one and that one. And that's the stuff I look back, look at in our apartment, now, in our house now in Berkeley that we rent and go, look what that show gave to us. <laughs> this is the nicest bed we've ever had. Yay, basic cable. <laughs> so losing that show was tough. I mean, it's so stupid. It's so easy to go, yeah, it was tough. And then I started to step back and go, it's not. It was the, nobody in life is promised a television show. By having a TV show, I'm instantly one of the most successful people in the history of show business by default. So yeah. it's like there's, so I just want to be giving a little bit of perspective. Uh, uh, having something that you thought was your dream taken away, I would rather frame it as that was tough. You know, yeah. something that, but then in the middle of it going, was this the dream? And so I don't, so it was just, the whole thing got so, the, by the end it was so turned upside down and our lives have been turned up so, upside down that there was a point at which you just, where I remember being like, whoo, and as much as I didn't know what the future was going to be, I was like, it just, there was a, there was a, and I'm sure people who worked on the show would say this, there was a point, it's almost like I felt like a little bit lighter, because it was so, by the end it was so turned on its ear. Are you, now with the new CNN show, mm-hmm. which we're so excited <laughs> to watch, congratulations, Thanks. United States of America, are mm-hmm. you, this is a new television show? Yes. That you're hosting? Yes. So are Totally you- different from... I mean, I'm, it's, it's, just a, it's, not, it's a travel show. So that's one of the reasons that when I had... I, there was ideas of things I could sort of... Projects I could pursue. One of the reasons that I chose this one or that we chose this one is because it doesn't matter where you live if you have a travel show. So we could go back to Berkeley and not feel like I was m- missing something or not getting in the right thing. So we... You know, it was just an easy. It, was, it made sense, even though it was it was a it was a big bet because it was just a pilot that we were like, if that goes, if that doesn't go, then there's nothing. You know, so. And Melissa, how does this feel for you preparing for this new TV show in your life? I mean, it, the structure of the two shows seems so different. Yeah. That it's kind of like a little bit of apples and oranges. Um, certainly, the production schedule for this one was compacted and happened sooner and, and sort of overlapping other things on the schedule in a way that like I certainly didn't anticipate. So yeah. that was a big surprise because 
Juno when the show was got picked up, the show's, old or something. Yeah, like when that. the show got picked up, the show schedule just sort of flopped on top of the, whatever the schedule I had, and it just and was you know we just had this new baby, and so it was just like suddenly as the week like, you were supposed to have off was suddenly like the, the week, week he could that work. he was doing yeah. the other yeah. gigs that were already scheduled that had to get squished into that week. So it's just been unrelenting really for the last six months and as the, long as we've had the baby, you know. Yeah. <laughs> You say that with a smile, which is just amazing. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, I (laughs) I should just go. (laughs) I, I mean, I feel very fortunate in the fact that, like, I really like being a mother. And, And it's crazy, crazy hard work, as anybody who's a mother or watched mothers closely knows. Um, but I, like, I, I actually really enjoy it. And so I feel like that is part of how I'm able to manage it with a smile. Like, it's a thing that I feel good about doing, actually. Like, that I feel like I do fairly well and that I can um, get, develop a routine or, like, get, get behind in, a, in some fun and creative ways uh, so that it's not all about, like, me standing on the porch with babies watching him walk away you know like it's that's not the scene at all it's like yeah. he comes and he goes and we i feel like we are doing well i say that uh and that is only true for me because we were able to move back to california like that was my saving grace for sure i cannot imagine raising this second baby in New York City with him gone as much as he's been gone because my my whole family's in California and we have a huge network of friends who also have kids and you know they've been a hugely integral part in me being able to manage all this. You yeah. grew up in California? Yeah. In a in a northern California, not a city. I grew up in Monterey, yeah, which is about 2 hours south of San Francisco. And in a big family. Yeah. And Kamal, you Grew up with your mom, moving mm-hmm. from city to city, and then spent time with your dad in Alabama. Yeah. So I, I wonder when you think about what your kids are learning from being in your family right now, with their dad is famous and on the verge of being more famous, so being on CNN, you're a biracial couple, you're living in Berkeley. What do you think your kids are learning about life that you two didn't learn? Good one. <laughs> I can, I can, I, well, obviously, I can speak from my perspective on this. One of the things that was important to me about moving back to California—that was important. Melissa does have a big family. And it's a very uh, close-knit family. I would say weirdly close-knit at times. That's fair. Uh, Sorry, mom. <laughs> inappropriately close-knit. Stop it's, it. Believe me, this is hurting me way more than it's. Uh, it'll be an uncomfortable Thanksgiving. Uh, but they're just like I, this. When I think of Melissa's family, they her, her parents live in, a, in like a three bedroom house, and there's rooms for everybody. But they all just sort of all go to the kitchen together, and they all go to the living room together. We're close. And We're so really there's close. just the thing. Like if I'm just like I'm going to stay in the living room, I suddenly feel like a weirdo. Because <laughs> I grew up in a, in a house where we probably me and my mom we had a house, and we could I could be upstairs, she could be downstairs, and I'll see you when I when we see you. You know, we were super close, but we didn't feel the need to be like that all the time. So. But I'm bringing it around. <laughs> it's really awesome, and this is why we will never move out of Northern California. That Hopefully. Sammy and Juno, no, we're not going anywhere. Uh, <laughs> that Sammy and Juno are going to grow up 
with a super big, super extended, tight-knit family. That she's, Sammy's, one of her best friends is her cousin. One of my cousins was one of my best friends, but I saw her every summer. You know, like, (laughs) so we still feel close. Nora, are you here? She lives in Brooklyn. That's how close we are now. Uh, (laughs) But that's what happens. It's like, you just sort of like, we didn't, we were like, when we were in Alabama, I was like, you're the weirdo too. But then we've spent a lot of time apart. So, but Sammy's best friend, when Sammy's going to, if she brings, if Allie's coming over, then the world is all right. So I feel grateful that she's going to learn a different version of family than I learned. I think my family's great, but I really feel like it is important to have... It's great when, you're, when you can be friends with a lot of family people, you know? Yeah. And whereas a lot of my cousins, it's like... Sometimes Melissa's like, what's her name again? I'm like, I think it's Donna. Like, you know... <laughs> like, just because we didn't see each other, I'm like, hold on, let me look on Facebook. Uh... <laughs> That it just, it's just not the same. So I feel like that's one thing that they're definitely learning. And then there's all the, there's all the race stuff, but that's a whole different thing. <laughs> yeah. What are your kids learning about race by growing up in your household? Well. <laughs> I mean, I, mean, uh, I, 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 I uh, this is what we think about. I think we, think we talk about this all the time. We're very, uh, we're very talky people. Uh, our, we have always, since he was a little, since Sammy, I think we're talking about Sammy because she's the one who we sort of tried it out on and then we'll f- perfect it with Juno. Uh, yeah. It's <laughs> kind of true. Yeah, like, you know, because I feel like with Juno, it's like, well, we'll get it when we get it. But with Sammy, we've always read books to her about, like, there's just these, like, you know, about mixed race families or books that feature uh, characters of color and, you know, Doc McStuffins. So she's always, I feel like that is one part. It's just sort of like, these are, this is a thing, these are people, oh, this family looks like our family. We don't say this family looks like our family, we just read it and go, mm-hmm. But she does. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and she does. She's like, and th- this one looks like, oh, my favorite is that she's now drawing pictures of us. And it's so cool because it's very clear in the pictures who is who. Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> she and Dada always get afros and I get like a short, straight bob. Dada's always like 10 feet taller than everybody else. And baby Juno's always on her side. Like laying down. It's very representational. It's quite good. It's fantastic. Uh, yeah. And so she, at one point, we read this book, there was this book, so at some point Sammy realized, just because we're reading these books, she goes, she realized, she's like, she would put my hand next to her and she'd go, we're the same color. Now she's mixed, so she's not the same color as me. <laughs> as the black people know what I'm talking about. Uh. <laughs> but she's much closer in shade to me than she is to Melissa. Now, at some point, we were reading this book to her called My Peanut Butter Baby Brother about a family like ours. It's awesome. It's awesome. Go get it. Uh, is that Selena Alco? Yes, yeah, Selena, Selena Alco. Alco. She's a Brooklyn resident, Selena Alco, uh, and her husband. Uh, so she's re- and so she, the kid, it's basically our family. The only difference is that the dad has a shaved head, but it's, the dad same Otherwise, color as exactly me. The, same. the mom, it looks, it's, it's very, Selena, it's weird. Uh, but... And the kid is, I'm peanut, I'm peanut brother. And so at some point, Sammy goes, she starts to realize Dada's chocolate, I'm peanut butter, and Mama's oatmeal. Oatmeal. <laughs> oatmeal is yeah. not good. Mama, <laughs> <laughs> chocolate and peanut butter. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, if you put some chocolate. Yeah. Nutritious. If you put some chocolate and peanut so butter, fine. it's good. <laughs> the healthy one. Uh, so, and uh, there was a weird point for me when she realized that we were different shades. I was a little bit like, oh, that, that was fun. Uh, not that it mattered, I don't care, but it was just, it was fun that she was like claiming her color yeah. in a way at an age that she was like, there was no negative association. There was no, I don't want to be this color. And, you know, black people go through that at various ages. So she may go through an age where her color is, she's conscious of it and not happy with it. But it was great to just hear her go, yep, me and Dada. Uh, and so now that she's peanut butter, and so now we've started to go, and we, you know, we, we, this past year we celebrated Kwanzaa, because that's how I rolled when I grew up. Uh, <laughs> thank you, one person. Uh, <laughs> but it was Melissa who was like, are we finally going to do Kwanzaa? Right. Like, she was the one who was like, because I'd been talking about talk it, about but it. I'm too lazy to go do stuff. So... <laughs> Melissa is the one who was like, I, let's get the stuff, let's do this. So we did it. And, but now it's like about, well, how do we talk about... There's race, but then there's racism. That's the hard one yeah. at this point. Yeah, and so that's the one where you go, how do we even... And I was talking about this earlier today, that like, and I thought it was like, for, I think in the... This is so... This could, I don't know how this is going to come out exactly, so prepare. <laughs> in, an, in a household where everyone is... Black. I'll just say this from my own experience. You can have the racism discussion in a way that has a little bit embedded in it. Like, you can have a little bit of like the white devil did all yeah. these things. <laughs> you can just have that in there. It can be at the. I don't know. The white man is a terrible thing. This blue. <laughs> Even in a liberal progressive household, you can move through that part of it to get to the part about. But we the all have nuanced to learn. Yeah. conversation. Yeah. So, and I know that from my own household with my mom, that we had to go through the white man, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, your best friend is this white kid named Richard. And he's, yeah. a, and, and he's great, and go over there, have a good time. <laughs> I, that's what I knew. I said, it's, it's, it's uh. But I feel very much like I can't exactly take her down White Devil Alley. <laughs> no oatmeal when, devils. Yeah, the oatmeal devil. The oatmeal yeah. devil. <laughs> When there's a white person right next to us. <laughs> so, I mean, so we're, I feel like, and, you new know. Territory. It's new territory. It's new territory. Which is, so, she, however she gets it, she's going to get it different than I did because I just got it a different way because we didn't have to worry. There was no need to protect anyone's feelings in an all black household and or, need, or need to even enter the conversation with nuance because you're like, we'll get to nuance later, but right yeah. now, just be angry. Yeah. Yeah. Last question for you, Kamau. When we talked, it was just a few months ago, early in 2015, and you said your goal for the year was to make more money than you did last year (laughs) and to have more quality time with your kids. Yes. You know what? Because we have two kids and because I want to be uh, at this point, although I look forward to it changing, I'm the person who makes the money. Money, it's absolutely important that that I really want my kids to not want for anything. But I'm more concerned about this quality time with my family than I am about the money. And I feel like I'm saying that carefully because it sounds like I'm not worried about money, but I just feel like we will, we have to, I can't, we constantly remind each other that we'll figure it out. It's because I think if I, if you, if I fall in love with the money side of my career and not the 
creating art that I think the world will like or be scared of, whatever way, however you take it. <laughs> if I fall in with that, then I'm doomed because I'm not good enough to do that. <laughs> I'm not a shiny enough artist to just be like, aren't I just good looking even though the art is crappy? I'm not. <laughs> I have to be, the art has to be worth something. W. Kamau Bell and Melissa Hudson Bell, thank you yeah. for joining us. Awesome. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I also want to thank WNYC on this first birthday of Death, Sex, and Money. Um, personal note, I mean, I was covering politics before this show started, and I told them I had an idea that I wanted to try, and I wanted to call it Death, Sex, and Money, and they let me do it, so thank you for that. The idea for Death, Sex, and Money didn't actually start in a radio studio for me. It started in a crappy Williamsburg studio about four years ago. And it was one night, uh, one of the most tender moments in my life when I felt the most alone. It was the night I decided to end my first marriage and decided to get divorced. And I was feeling so much shame and feeling like this wasn't me, I care about family, I care about honoring my commitments, what does this mean about me? And I felt really embarrassed because I was going to have to tell people that my marriage had failed. And that night, I decided to tell the first two people, and they were my parents, and I called them up, and it was late at night, and my mom answered the phone, first thing, I burst into tears, and they were already in bed, And my mom said just the right thing. She said, we're here for you. We're here for you. It's going to be okay. And then I heard, let me talk to her. (laughs) (laughs) That's my dad. Um, and, my, and that made me nervous. Like, my dad, uh, my dad had some high standards for his five daughters. Um, one of the mantras growing up was, project yourself as a role model. And I was in my studio apartment, covered in snot, (laughs) uh, sobbing, trying to get words out between sobs. And he picks up the phone, and the first thing he says is, I know exactly how you feel, Anna. My dad was divorced before he married my mom. He said, I know exactly how you feel. I know you're exhausted, and you can't sleep. I know you never imagined this for yourself. I know you're so scared for the future. I know exactly how you feel. And in that moment, it was the perfect thing to hear. Because it didn't didn't fix anything. I was still getting divorced. I was still really sad about that. felt a lot of pain. But he made me feel a lot less isolated. And so I want to thank them. They are here tonight, sitting next to Arthur. (laughs) Arthur is the man I get to marry this summer. And 
Um, I, I want to thank them preemptively for the next time I come to the three of them sobbing and needing help, because I know it's going to happen again, because that's how life happens. And so that was the idea when I started thinking about death, sex, and money, was to tell stories and have conversations where there weren't neat resolutions or tidy endings, but where you might be listening and you hear this flash and you gasp and think, oh, they know exactly how I feel. Because as Tracy K. Smith said at the very beginning of this evening together, she said, perhaps the greatest error is believing that we're alone. So thank you for sharing your stories with us, for saying scary things out loud, and for listening to each other, because it has been such a great year. Thank you. And thank you. It has been a really great first year. With that, Luscious Jackson played their last song, and the show ended. And yes, there was some dancing. Death, Sex, and Money is a production of WNYC. The team includes Katie Bishop, Emily Botine, James Ramsey, and Joe Ford. Our engineers at BAM were Ed Haber, Irene Trudell, George Wellington, and Bill Moss. Special thanks to Rachel Dickstein and Chris Bannon for their help with this show, as well as interns Caitlin Pierce, Zachary Mack, and Shannon McMahon. The Reverend John DeLore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. The band Luscious Jackson performed that theme song and all of the other music during this live show. They also played their hit song, Naked Eye. You can listen to that on our website at deathsexmoney.org. If you want to stay in the loop about all of our future events, subscribe to our newsletter. There's a sign-up at deathsexmoney.org. You can go straight to deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter. Every Wednesday, we'll send you show updates, other podcast episodes we recommend, and some of the emails we get from you. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. Yes, I'm in now. I will be the one who keeps you around. Thank you.